Hello and welcome to Faith in Politics. I'm Rodney. And I'm Meg, and this is JPIT's podcast. JPIT is the Joint Public Issues Team and is made up of the Baptist Union of Great Britain, Church of Scotland, the Methodist Church, and the United Reformed Church, working together for peace and justice. This means that basically we're a team of people, churches that work together on social justice issues, um, which can vary massively all the way from refugee crisis to welfare policy. So what have we got this month's episode, Rodney? We've got an interview with Rachel Meskell, the MP for York Central, also the Shadow Minister for Charities. She speaks about our global responsibility as a country, how she got into politics, how important faith is for her within her politics. One of the things when we spoke to Rachel a few weeks ago that I found the most interesting to hear about was her time pre-politics. She has an extensive career both as a trade union rep um, at quite a high level and also in the NHS where she was a physiotherapist. And it was really interesting to hear from her the influence of her professional life and how that's impacted her politics. What did you find particularly interesting when we spoke to her, Rodney? For me, I found it interesting um, what inspires her. I think it definitely comes across in the interview. and You really feel her heart and her passion for politics and where she thinks it can go and be better. Mm. Um, She even touches a bit on the tribalism which is yeah. quite interesting. Definitely. It's a very hopeful vision of politics that she has, which is really great, because I think often, as Christians in politics, we end up straying into that very, like, doom and gloom. Everybody's terrible. How does Shane describe it? As we're trying to get the best of worst options. Um, so it's actually quite affirming to hear someone talk of politics in, in an uplifting way. And at the time of recording, we are slap bang in the middle of Lent, which is season of highs and of lows um and I know lots of people are giving stuff up I have given up coffee which I am missing massively and it also means I've been driven to drinking tea which I don't even particularly like and it's probably like a bit of a loophole but sometimes in the morning I just need a warm drink to get me awake what about you Rodney have you given anything up you know so funny I was close to giving up coffee but I've actually become obsessed with coffee and it's not even like a, a thing that I've been obsessed with for a long time. It just started at the beginning of this year, I'd say. So I've given up chocolate. Um, I think it's also important for us not to lose sense of this time, you know. Lent's important for many Christians around the world because it's that opportunity to allow us to grow our relationship with God and commit to deepening our way to his way of living. and Also reflecting on the things that we've done wrong and asking for that forgiveness and showing that repentance and sorrow for what we've done. A theme that we really felt emerged from speaking to Rachel was the need, especially in times of lockdown and a difficulty where it's really, really easy to turn inwards, the importance um, and the call on our lives God has for us to look outwards and not to be um, self-centred or inward-focused. So it's something Rodney and I, after we listen to our interview with Rachel, are going to muse on and explore a bit more. What does it mean for for us to look outwards. So now let's jump in with Rachel. Hi, thank you for joining us, Rachel. Really nice to to be with you today. Thanks so much for joining us, Rachel. Here at Faith and Politics, we're really keen to understand the role faith has played in high-profile figures like yourselves' lives. Could you just share with us how you first became a Christian? Well, um, 
growing up in the the 1970s as I I did um I, I guess you know faith was part of the kind of community um school at um church in the, in the village and and so I had a good understanding of um the bible stories I guess as a, a child but it's when I was um 11 at Christian Union meeting at the school um, I heard the gospel in a different way and um, realised that, you know, the, the enormity of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made um, for me because of what I had done and um, realised that I needed to put him first in my life. And um, from that point, my life changed. It really is amazing the impact of the culture and community we grew up in on our information, isn't it? So looking to politics, would you say that similarly you grew up surrounded by it? Or was there almost like a conversion moment where it became a real priority to you? No, um, politics is always in the home. I um, can't remember a, a meal time where we weren't discussing things. Um, again, kind of back in the 70s, Margaret Thatcher coming in, um, that certainly uh, woke my home up, um, very much a kind of trade union um, home as well. And therefore, and, and my uncle was a particular mentor, uh, inspiration to me. He was a great penal reformer, um, brought around the abolition of, of the death penalty in the UK and very much was uh, somebody that advocated for penal reform um, in all of its form. form. So um, there was always a, something to discuss about politics. Um, so, and, and I think for me, just seeing the injustice, the inconsistency, and of course, during the 1980s, we saw mass unemployment strikes, um, real inequality occurring and um, issues like homelessness. And myself, and of course we had, um, you know, globally, um, we were seeing the real destitution of people, you know, through Ethiopia and, and other countries where war had ripped through those nations and people were suffering the consequences. And I think I just ask, as I do today, a lot of questions about why, because clearly so many of these things are of human error, greed, um, selfishness, and just how how as a society we have to respond to that but also individually um and everything i saw was that actually politics was making it worse not better um and therefore um we needed to see an alternative um being put forward um obviously labor were out of power for a long time and it was a you know, very clear understanding for me about the role Labour had in always representing, uh, you know, the communities in the way that it does, always looking out for those people who are on the edges of society and providing the safety nets, as it had done in 1945 for the safety nets there, as it had done consistently. That's why the Labour Party was set up by the trade unions and civil groups was in order to really be the voice for those people which were voiceless in the political system at the time and believe that that voice was needed back through those what I would say quite dark political times of the the 1980s 90s um you know so a very much politics was buzzing all around me and I had a huge interest just in kind of making society a fairer more just place and how do you see the relationship between your faith and your politics and what difference has it made to your work in parliament um, the two are completely entwined in my life and it's often something I, I reflect on um, because um, I think we have to have that uh, 
view about what the world is actually about and that that big vision you know about God's plan of restoration um, and within that looking at politics being a tool um, and I think sometimes everyone thinks politics is it um, but actually it's a tool where we can advocate for change and for better it's a, a place where we can um, bring about um, real justice and I think that's obviously again very much integrated with what faith is about a, a, a real justice um, but um, I think what often I see is political expediency and tribalism in politics which is very much put at the forefront of our British system rather than actually constant thinking about how can we improve the quality of life of others and um, often we see it on the ground through charitable organisations, faith groups and churches and um, being that servant to the community. And I believe that um, politicians are people of service um, and that we have been given the privilege to serve a community and to ensure that people are heard within that and their needs are met. And therefore, I do have a very, whilst obviously looking at national and international affairs, and it is more important than ever that we do that, but also very much recognising the relationship I've got with my constituents and being there for them, but also advocating for them and therefore stretching Parliament down into my constituency and stretching their voice into the heart of Westminster. You mentioned um, just a minute ago that you grew up in a kind of trade union household and before becoming an MP, you worked in the NHS. What do you think was the biggest impact on you of that work, both in the NHS and then um, within the unions? Now you're in Parliament, kind of on, almost on the other side of some of the conversations. Yeah, well, two things about working in the NHS. I mean, it's where life happens and life events happen. And I think, you know, there is an intimacy in the work that you do. As a physiotherapist, I worked in intensive care and uh, acute medicine um, with people that were very poorly and um, very much kind of supported their needs. But I think it was such an important grounding for my journey um, about really, you know, how we communicate with people in a time of need, but also provide that, in my case, very physical um, support to people um, and their families and having that wider holistic look, working with others in the best interests of patients. So I think that was really, really important. Um, as a trade union official, um, so I had a, a combined career. Um, I was, a first of all, a, a local regional official and then um, spent over 12 years as a national officer, um, working very closely with um, government and opposition um, in order to advance the needs. So I learned very quickly, first starting off as a rep in my workplace uh, in the hospital, um, then representing the whole hospital, then representing um, you know, larger sections of the economy and ultimately the NHS. I ended up back where I started really. Um, and um, when you were carrying the, the voice of over 100,000 people and their interests around their work, their well-being, um, you've got to get it right. So I think it was incredible training ground and how to advocate, how to um, speak truth to power um, and how to make a difference, when to um, 
you know, support and to move a debate forward, but also when to oppose and to challenge, um, but to always try and do that in a constructive way, because um, there are huge responsibilities in trying to do that, but also working with people in that representation to ensure that we shape the future. And I work very heavily on policy development because that's important um, to the people I represented to get the frameworks right for the future. And, and certainly I would say in becoming a member of parliament, all of that experience um, from health and from the trade union movement all grounded me and enabled me to hit the ground running, to know what I was doing in Westminster and to have a very clear view of what I want to do. And for, for me being, um, I was a national officer, so I was traveling all over the UK and Ireland, um, representing people in, the, in their, their, their role. Um, so actually having a location to try and build community and to build a political community to take that voice into parliament was really, really important, but also to engage all of those elements of which obviously faith groups have played a, a major role in that and the local churches because the incredible work that they have done not just through this pandemic but in my city um, what a testimony they are of putting the gospel in action and um, it's always a privilege to work with them amazing you're the shadow charities minister and you know charities very well play an important role in our communities and no doubt you've seen and had to deal with charities being hit during this pandemic what do you believe needs to be done? What more needs to be done by the government, by people to help charities during this pandemic? Such a good uh, question. And um, I was also a trade union official and the National Officer for Charities for about seven years. So um, I carry through a lot of uh, history. It's wonderful the way that your life kind of threads and twine and, and, and in such a way. Um, but um, clearly funding is the big issue for charities. Um, they've experienced more than £10 billion lost in income and that has really hit charities hard. Many have had to lay off staff. Many others have um, obviously had to cut back on the work they're doing. And as the charities are saying at the moment, their campaign slogan, never more needed, because we know that people are turning to charitable organizations for support. We're seeing mutual aid groups springing up in our communities, people wanting to serve, wanting to help volunteer, which is, has been amazing. I think what we've seen over the last year of what people selflessly um, give of themselves, um, but also um, charities themselves, they need confidence in how they advocate, how they engage with government. And I've particularly been looking through different prisons, for instance, in resultant of Black Lives Matter and looking at, for instance, organisations which represent uh, black and ethnic minority communities, often very small, hardly receive any funding, working, doing amazing things in communities, so focused on that, that they're not organised in order to challenge back to governments. And then we question why we've got structural institutional racism you know at the heart of our kind of national structures um, because charities are working at such a level if you like dealing with the, the needs on the ground that actually we need to help them to have that voice in the center and to power forward in order to bring about those changes so i've been looking at how we have that better power and partnership um, as well as the pound which is all important to the work that they do Amazing. So obviously with the nature of charities, there are so many different kinds doing different things. If you could pick any 
one injustice in the UK or in the world to put right with kind of like, uh, I'd say a click of a button, I'm not sure what kind of button that would be, but what would you pick? I know that's a very big question. I think Rodney wrote that question. Oh, it's a, a very difficult question because um, I don't want to lose favour with any of them because they all are utterly amazing. And I think when you kind of sit down and listen to the work they do, I just day by day it's a privilege and it's outstanding what people do I think for for me um and I think it's really important of where we are in our national calendar if you like our political timeline is to um look at the world in a bigger way um I think we can become very introspective and in some ways you know and I'm not faulting that at all but I think um, society is pushing us into that space where we're looking at our own circumstances and need and I understand all of that um, and of course we're kind of regressing a bit of as a nation into ourselves but I think we have to look globally and we know that um, whilst there is so much deprivation, inequality, um, poverty in our country we don't have to look very far to see it in new measures elsewhere in the world and um, we really do have to think globally we're in a connected world and we know that many of the actions that we take clearly have implications for people around the world whether it's on climate which clearly has got to move higher up a priority list whether it is on trade and about the human rights which are um, instituted or not, as the case may be, whether it is around um, the conflicts that we're seeing and the way that that is bringing about a mass migration of people at a greater rate than we have ever seen because of the, the sheer horrors that people are exposed to that none of us can ever comprehend. Um, we as a nation have to be incredibly generous with the privileges that we have to those that have nothing. And therefore, I think it's absolutely crucial that um, we look at those injustices, clearly politically using our leverage wherever we can, but um, through our giving, making sure that the most vulnerable, the most challenged, and I think particularly, um, you know, about people who are, you know, being exploited around the world for Western greed, whether it's in employment, sexual exploitation, modern slavery, there are so many different areas. We have absolutely got responsibilities to be able to address those problems, as I say, in every way, so politically, as well as obviously in the acts that we do of kindness towards those people. Lastly, how have you been able to navigate any conflicts you've had with your own faith and that of being a politician and public figure? Of course, um, I would say there's more synergy than conflict. Um, and um, I really, when I hear the calls of my constituents, I believe that um, they are the, the, the source of humanity of which, you know, the injustices, which um, I believe are on God's hearts too. So, um, I would say there is a lot in line. Of course, there are issues which, you know, come um, across my desk where um, there isn't always that, and not everyone agrees on everything. And I think we have to accept that, um, you know, there will, 
you can never you're not there to please people and I think there are times when you are there to do what's right and to provide leadership as well as um, times where obviously you are to collect that majority voice which is what you do the vast majority of time but there have been issues where um, and I can think of several votes um, we've had, for instance, on the conflicts in Syria and what we should do, where, um, you know, if you like, there isn't a, a map in front of you saying this is the Christian way and this is not. But I think it's how you handle those situations and to prayerfully consider um, why you are making the choices that you are, which is really important. Um, and to be able to stand by that and give um, answer to the choices that you have made without regret um, and therefore even if it is on occasion publicly unpopular the choices you have made um, I think you have a responsibility to justify that and to do that with integrity and um, if people understand that that's your approach then um, I think you can stand confident you've done what you believe is right. But I appreciate that that isn't always being in the mainstream of political thought. And there are many things I've spoken out about, and I can give the example again around, obviously, you know, the country's response at the moment to refugees, believing that that is inequitable, um, you know, and being prepared to say, actually, we as a nation need to rethink um, some of our approaches to that. I recognise all the challenges and all the arguments and all the sides, but actually we, we say a lot from a very privileged position, even those with very little are very privileged compared to other people. And um, yeah, we have to really think we are part of a very interconnected world. Great. Well, that was fab to hear from Rachel. And I know there was something in particular kind of stuck with you that you wanted to unpick a bit more. I think what was really key and stood out to me was Rachel's passion about our global responsibility as a country. And she said specifically that we need to look at the world in a bigger way and that society is forcing us to look at our own circumstances and need and then that results in us forgetting our global responsibility and considering the needs of others. And it got me thinking, I don't know why, but I'm someone that tends to dream a lot and they're quite unrealistic. But when I was thinking about what she said, I was imagining myself being a priest. It's weird, honestly. And you know like how you've got so many priests that can do like a sermon series where they're speaking about a thing but they like have they've broken it down in so many segments for the next month. So for the next four Sundays, they're gonna preach about this. What popped into my head was charity begins at home. It's a phrase like we've all heard, right? Mm. And it's quite interesting to me because if I was preaching that in church, let's say, it would be like sayings, yeah, that Jesus never said. Mm. But we think that are in the Bible. Like I thought um everything happens for a reason was in the bible the worst one was um i, I don't know what this saying was that the beginner is not the worker but he that works to the end i thought it was in the bible and i said it in like a public gathering and my sister was like you know that's not in the bible right and i was so i've never heard that before yeah but so 
what stuck with me was charity begins at home and it's the saying that we use a lot and many will know a big issue of contention within this country has been the foreign aid budget. It was cut yeah. from 0.7 to 0.5 of the national income and it received so much like public criticism. Um, I believe our last five living prime ministers currently criticised it. Andrew Mitchell criticised it. For me, it was interesting because foreign aid, that foreign aid budget is something that's been such a contentious issue within society for such a long time. You know, we hear discussions about where is that money going to? What projects is it? Can't we see it? But charity begins at home. And that's the thing that everyone goes back to. You hear another man say, charity begins at home. Our NHS is suffering. Charity begins at home. We haven't got enough money for this, for that. We've got so many food banks. Charity begins at home. We're spending so much elsewhere. But what about our problems? And it got me thinking about that saying and Rachel speaking about our global responsibility and how society forces us to look inwards. And can we really strike a balance and what that saying, that phrase means? It's interesting, mm. isn't it? I think it is. And I, it was one of those sayings, like you said, that, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't pin it on a person, but it's kind of a background one. And you do kind of think, oh, it's in the Bible. And I was Googling it to check where it came from. And, you know, the root or the kind of the passage that people have extrapolated almost to get to get to that is is from Timothy it's 1 Timothy um, chapter 5 verse 8 which is anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household is denied their faith and is worse than an unbeliever and it is a really difficult question because you know we obviously strive to live out the teachings of Jesus and we can't deny the fact that in the UK there are a lot of people struggling things are not perfect there, you know, as we've seen with the free school meals fiasco, um, there are an awful lot of people living under the poverty line. You know, food bank use is booming. Undeniably, our NHS is is stretched to breaking point. You know, all the needs aren't met in this country, and you're completely right that that if we take that, you can you can just become really inward. Um, you know, we need to meet all the needs in this country before we even begin to look elsewhere. That doesn't sit right, does it? Like that doesn't, you don't come away from that feeling like that is what Jesus would tell us to do, to only meet the needs of others when our own needs are met. Because, you know, if you think of the story, and this might be a confusing one to apply to the concept of international development, but of the widow um, in the temple with her offering, you know, she didn't give out of abundance. She didn't have everything that she needed. And so she gave to those less in need. She gave out of her, out of her lacking, but she gave everything she could. And I'm always wary of applying, um, not of applying biblical truths to, to politics and to government because we can't, but because we have to remember that the government isn't a big person. Like I think sometimes we like to just turn the government or turn politics into a family or one person and it isn't. And so we can't just say, well, because I as an individual would do X with my money, the state should do same thing with its money because that's just not how it works but turning inwards is not what we're called to do as Christians. No, I totally agree I think um and I to be fair I, I, I've been guilty of that way of thinking and I wouldn't necessarily say to think charity begins at home and want to look inwardly and solve the issues you have at home first is necessarily wrong it seems to me 
most of the time when I actually hear that saying, I would say most of the time it's a justification for not being generous, you know? Yeah. And like I was wondering about this saying, and you, you're completely right. You're right. It does come from first um, Timothy 5. And within that scripture, you see Paul speaking about how we should care for elders and widows as such. And it's quite interesting because if we think about our global responsibility to those in different regions on the, of the world where they're at a disadvantage and we're better off, we'll say, I think we can put the situation of widows in the same situation at that time because we have to understand that widows at the time in the Bible were grief-stricken. They were people that rarely worked outside of their home, especially for the women. And they had a very little legal standing in the judicial scene and their economic agency wasn't there for them. I think the essence of that charity begins at home. We can say, yes, it does begin at home. Yes, we need to look after our NHS. Yes, we need to look after our young people. We need to deal with the homeless. We need to deal with so much poverty within this country. Charity begins at home, but does it stop there? And the answer mm. for us is no, it doesn't stop there. And whereas we agree with the idea, we really need to know that it only comes up in opposition to foreign aid. I'm not happy that we've necessarily cut the foreign aid budget. I would like it to be back to where it was. But I think we need to unpick that saying because it's easy to get away with that saying. I think the first thing I can acknowledge about that is when we use it out of context, we tend to be using it in a very selfish way we make compassion seem like it's a zero-sum game. It's like, mm. oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pay for my car insurance. I'm going to pay for my bills. I'm going to pay for my shopping. I'm going to... And then whatever I have, I'm going to give there and I'm going to do that because we make compassion seem like it's a finite resource when it really isn't yeah. a finite resource. It's something that we should apply in ne necessarily every area of our lives and within society. And sometimes it feels like when we say it, we're treating those that are less fortunate like they're leftovers, so they deserve what we just have within. They're, yeah. the, they're our last thoughts. So I think it's about the the problem really is the mindset of the saying in which we say it. We never really do say it yeah. in context. I think you're bang on. And like you said, there's, you know, generosity is not finite. And yeah, resources are sometimes, and we can't pretend that money grows on trees. But... Like you said, Jesus' story is not one of, you know, giving out all the love he's got and then saying, sorry, guys, I've run out. And that sounds like a massive simplification. But I think this, especially the, the um, verse that this stems from, is a challenge not to give less to those far away, but to kind of do better wherever we are. It's not saying, you know, don't look after anyone until you've looked after your family. It's saying provide for those who haven't got you know, provision. I think something that I do find, and this is a me thing, quite brain boggling, if I can say that, is what does home mean? And as a Christian, obviously, the government is here to provide for and protect, you know, the people in our case, um, of, of the United Kingdom, that's who elect it, that's who pays taxes that fund it. Um, but as Christians, the Bible doesn't say to prefer those of the same nationality of us or the same citizen 
um, shippers us. And when we're told to love our neighbor and to welcome the stranger, it doesn't say within the confines of your of your country. Um, and and again, it kind of goes back to the same point I was saying before: if it's difficult to apply biblical kind of precepts to to the, the nation and to the state, but in loving our neighbor, why should we prefer the neighbor near to us to the neighbor far away from us? That, you know, I don't, I can't see any reason to do that. That's not to say, again, that you should just meet one need, but it is interesting this hierarchy we place on, you know, feeding the poor in the UK, we should do that first. And maybe the government should, but why do we as individuals care more about the poor in one country than another? And it's very simpl- simplifying to just say, you know, the poor. I know, I just think it's interesting. Why have we decided that one neighbour is more important than the other neighbour when, in reality, there's no kind of justification for that? I think it's a good question, and it's actually one that I don't have an answer for. But I also find <laughs> right, that right. I, I don't have an answer for it, um, because I tend to find that those that are against foreign aid don't actually know where the money's going to. They can't see the yeah. projects, and that's what causes them that kind of frustration with it. But I think if we can find a way of building that relationship, because I think it's a good thing for us to be, you've heard the saying, global Britain. If we want to really be global Britain, we need to keep up with our foreign aid um, investment and not decrease it. But we also need to be a country where we look at the things we're doing and can point to that and be proud of what we're doing, because that encourages us more to do even more than what we're doing. So I think there needs to be clarity in terms of what people see this money going into. It boils down to, and I don't want to be, I know we're not supposed to be party political, regardless of the opinions we may hold. It it takes me back to that bus with Brexit that said, what did it say, 350 million for the NHS? And it was a reason not to fund something. But did we ever see the funding for the NHS? And I know that's, you know, a particular example. But in the same way, you're right. People are angry to see money going elsewhere when they don't know where it's going and they don't know what it's doing, when in reality they don't really know what money does here either. So I think a lot of it does boil down to to education, political education, transparency in government um, and and participation at different levels. I think in, in summary, what we're really saying is that charity begins at home. That's right. But it doesn't end at home. It goes beyond. And for us as Christians, for Christians within politics, we have a duty and that duty is to also, but also bring forth better news within the gospel, which is also that of welcoming a stranger, which is also that of showing compassion and love to our neighbour. And that's our Mm. responsibility. Definitely. And if you wanted to read more about this, um, many of the partner churches of JPIP put out responses to foreign aid cuts last year, which you can find on our website, www.jointpublicissues.org.uk, where there's other resources about international development um, and how we can engage with poverty and inequality, both in the UK and abroad. that's the end of this month's episode thanks so much for listening make sure you follow us on twitter at fit underscore podcast and on instagram at faith in politics podcast we'd really love to hear your feedback um so please tweet us or email us at jpit um any suggestions for 
future episodes, thoughts, um, or yeah, anything you'd particularly like to hear us talk about or anyone you'd like to hear us speak to. We'd love to hear your thoughts um, and your opinions. So Rodney is just going to finish us out with a prayer. Holy Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit, you are the origin of all gifts. Make us grateful stewards of your many blessings. Father and creator of abundance, grant us generosity in sharing our gifts and resources with our brothers and sisters around the world. Jesus, thou Prince of Peace, Make us advocates of the peace that strengthens justice and the justice that sustains peace. Spirit of justice, may the love and equality you share with the Father and the Son inspire us to support just trade policies that lift up poor persons. Father, maker of the world, we ask you to make us responsible stewards of the earth's riches and respectful of the projects and people and lands we go into. Jesus Lord, who lightens burdens, may we look with mercy on nations burdened by death and commit ourselves to their relief. Holy Spirit, author of life, inspire us to protect the gift of creation and to assist those in poverty who suffer most from the environmental harm. Blessed Trinity, communion of love, help us to love our global neighbors and the global responsibility we share and all those displaced from their homes by welcoming refugees and immigrants and reducing poverty in other countries. Father, through your Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to recognize your face in all those affected by global poverty and fill us with the love and fortitude that we need to confront these issues. Amen. <laughs>